In Christianity, we discover a living God, a God who is fully alive, a God who is fully good, a God, so to speak, who takes sides. He takes the side of good versus evil, life versus death. Yes, God is beyond our ability to comprehend, but it's also the case that God has a positive character overflowing with existence and goodness. Welcome to the Catholic Theology Show, sponsored by Ave Maria University. I'm your host, Michael Dauphiné, and today we are continuing a series called Into Narnia with C.S. Lewis. And this is our fourth installment, and today we're going to be looking at his books, Miracles and the Silver Chair. In these works, Lewis really kind of developed some of the key themes of what does it mean to think about the world as having a creator, right? Uh, And if we begin to see the world as having a creator, how might the creator interact with the world? And even more so, how has the creator done so, right? Uh, Especially through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what Lewis does today in these works is he tries to take front and center uh, kind of a key challenge to the Christian faith and a challenge that has really uh, gained a lot of momentum and uh, kind of vigor over the last couple centuries through a particular kind of philosophy, uh, especially the philosophy of empiricism or what he will call naturalism or what I think we might term just materialism, right? The idea is all there is is matter, and there is nothing more. And what Lewis wants to suggest, right, is that this view of the world is actually counterintuitive, right? To think of the world as only being of matter, as only being of nature, uh, is actually... Uh, right, not not a true view of the world. So anyway, so that's kind of the big uh, question that he wants to argue. Number one is going to be that to believe in a creator is in accord with reason. Uh, reason itself actually is a hint of the creator. And number two, he wants to argue uh, that the resurrection is actually in keeping with the character and dignity of that creator. Christianity, one might say, is not necessarily a religion about miracles, but it certainly is a religion about the great miracle, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's interesting if you go back to Acts 17 when Paul is speaking to the Areopagus. right? He begins by speaking of God. right? He talks about Uh, In a way, it is God in whom we live and move and have our being, and even that we are his offspring. He quotes, right, some of the Greco-Roman pagan sages, the poets, who could recognize in a way that God was the creator and that we were somehow divine-like. And he says, ultimately, right, he says, but this God, right, is not something that we can represent in gold or silver, a representation of art or of man, right? We cannot form idols of the God who is the creator. 
But then he goes on to say that he now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all men by raising him from the dead. Uh, You may know in the story, it's at this point that the listeners in the Areopagus, right, in in Greece, uh, cease, uh, they begin to mock the resurrection of the dead. Um, But he also says, but some men joined him and believed. So what Paul does here is he links the idea of God as the creator to the resurrection of Jesus. And this is going to be kind of the key point that I want us to think about as we kind of study this with C.S. Lewis today. Paul says that because God is the creator of the universe and not merely an idol within the universe, it is in a way, fitting that he would act within the universe to bring it about to its completion. And the completion of the universe is seen in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and eventually his ascension and then his judgment of the world. That is, in a way, how the plan of the creator will be completed. Now, in uh, The Silver Chair, Lewis introduces us to a great character named Puddleglum, who's a marsh wiggle, which doesn't really matter for our purposes at this time. But he said he styled the character of Puddleglum after his gardener, uh, who was a a very good man, but he said always very dour and uh, always expecting the worst from everything. But anyway, at a key climactic moment, as the characters in the story have descended into Narnia, and then they've descended from Narnia into the caves underneath Narnia. Uh, It's it's actually a place called Underland, ruled by the queen. And the queen, uh, who's an evil queen, is in charge of Underland, and they are almost captured underneath. And in there, she gets in an argument with them. Uh, They try to say, there is a Narnia. There is something higher than this cavern, this cave. Uh, But she says, right, you can't say anything about the Narnia itself, the sun and the stars, without trying to compare them to something in the cave. You can't give me any proof that Narnia exists, right, for we're right now in the cave. And, you know, the the characters try to come up with different arguments. But at one point, Puddleglum simply says, right, uh, that, Why is it then that the world that we've made up in Narnia is so much richer and better than, so much more beautiful than this dark cave in which we currently live? And so eventually he says this, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan to lead it. And I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. This rallying cry is not a call to blind faith. It's not a call to believe in the absurd or the irrational. What it is, is it's a call to remember that the truths of faith may be hard and difficult to uphold and to profess. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says that faith is the art of holding on to truths once delivered by reason in spite of our changing moods. And he continues, for moods will change. In this case, Puddleglum really is trapped in a cave. He cannot experience Narnia. He cannot see the stars or the sky. Right? 
all he can experience is the darkness and kind of fake lights of the cave and the threat and the power of the witch. But nonetheless, right, he makes this profession of faith. I'm going to live, I'm going to be on Aslan's side, even if he can't at that moment experience, right, any Aslan to lead it. And I'm going to live as like a Narnian I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Well, in the same way, right, the believer can say, I'm on God's side, even if at this moment I can't experience God's presence. I'm going to live as like really a citizen of heaven, even if I can't at this moment have any kind of felt confirmation that heaven exists, right? This is ultimately the most rational thing. And of course, as we know in the story, of course there is an Arnia because they were just there and they've descended into the caves. Uh, so, right, Puddleglum shows that he's in a way the most rational by acting beyond his current moods and his current experiences. Now, what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to go through a few key themes in his book, Miracles. And then I want to go back to the silver chair and look at a few key themes there. Now, Lewis's book, Miracles, is really a beautiful work of philosophical theology. Uh, he draws upon, say, Thomistic philosophy, Thomistic understanding of God. Right? God is both being uh, and existence. Uh, being and existence, but also as essence, God is the perfection of all being, right? It, it's really a great introduction in a way to uh, this philosophy of God. Uh, but at the same time, Lewis does that. He also then considers, again, not only God as creator, he also considers God as the redeemer. God is the one who becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. So I want to suggest maybe kind of like three key themes as we're thinking through this. The first idea is simply that believing that there is a God is in accord with reason. Lewis starts out somewhat famously saying, seeing is not believing. The mentality or maybe uh, a motto of the contemporary empirical philosophy, this and empiricism here means uh, the idea that our reason is limited to that which we can sense and touch and measure and describe. Right, uh, empiricism is what we can is what we can touch and think and see. So anything beyond that is going to be really beyond our ability to know. So, and according to that model, seeing something should be believing. Right, we shouldn't believe what we can't see. But Lewis points out that actually, it's the kind of person we are determines, in a way, what we will see. Ultimately what we believe about ourselves and about the world will determine what we see. Right? If we believe we have souls and free will, then we will see something much grander in married love. If we believe that we are merely atoms or advanced animals, then we will see something different and lower in married love. So Lewis wants to contrast Supernaturalism versus naturalism. Naturalism is the view that nature is the whole interlocking event of physical causes. So everything within the universe is caused by everything else within the universe. Uh, there is a complete kind of dance or system 
I think it was Newton who said that if you could determine right the position and velocity of right every atom in the universe, you could tell the history of the universe backwards and forwards because it all follows this kind of the laws of nature. What Lewis wants to suggest, though, is that this view is actually right not trustworthy. There are not good philosophical reasons for holding such a view. What he wants to suggest is the first point is going to be that human reason itself is a rift within the natural order. Right? Human reason does not follow the laws of physical causation. If it does follow the laws of physical causation, uh, meaning that it's determined by the prior states of physical events in the world, then reason, as we know it, is not reason at all. Reason would simply be the response to stimuli. So what Lewis wants to suggest is that reason itself, if we genuinely have reason and we have the ability to come to know truth, then there is such a thing as rational causality, logical causality, which already points beyond merely the physical causality. Free will, human reason exist. Lewis says without that, then there could be no genuine scientific knowledge. There could be no knowledge of the truth. There could also be no moral living. We would never be caused to act by a judgment of the good or the true, but merely by prior physical events. Lewis has a great example when he talks about this. Is he talks in a way about saying naturalists, scientists, or you know those who want to hold that there is nothing more than the natural material universe. He said they were so busy thinking about the universe that they forgot that they were thinking. As a professor of uh, physics and uh, also a learned philosopher, theologian, Dr. Stephen Barr, uh, who writes a lot on the interaction of faith and science. He gave a talk once at Ave Maria University. I still remember it. He simply said that physicists are so good at seeing what's in front of their eyes, they've forgotten what's behind their eyes. Right? In a way, what is our soul that allows us to comprehend the mysteries of the universe, that allows us not only to look at stars, but to write down equations that determine how the stars function. We, in a way, have this incredible capacity to understand, to render explicitly intelligible the very intelligibility of the universe, and that is something that is more than the material universe. As Lewis puts it, he says it's like when you look through a window at a garden, at a certain point, you get so busy looking at the garden, you forget you're looking through a window. So we are so good and so oriented in our modern age to looking at the physical universe, to understanding the physical universe, that we forget that we are understanding and thinking about the universe and that that itself is not a material act. Now, the second thing that he wants to suggest is that if human reason itself points to something beyond the material causality of the universe, then he says, where does this reason come from? Because reason as it exists in us, as it exists in you right, and me, is not self-existent. It's not perfect. 
Uh, it came, it comes and it goes. It begins in us and it ends, right? Where does it come from? Right? Just as we see the natural order of the universe is a sign that there's a natural order of the universe. So if there's a rational order to the universe in us, it's a sign that there's a rational order of the universe. Lewis gives this example where he says, like, if I see lilies in a pond, and by the way, he had a pond in his backyard and loved to uh, bathe there. There's even, uh, he apparently, um, it was rather secluded and he would uh, enjoy going skinny dipping in the pond, uh, right? So you got to imagine he's in the pond, he's swimming with these lilies. And what he says is that the naturalist wants to say that when you see the lilies, you go all the way down and all you have is pond, pond forever. It's just an endless pond. Whereas the supernaturalist says that if you go deep enough in the pond, you hit the bottom of the pond, you hit dirt and rock, right? And subterranean earth, right? When you go, when you look at the universe and we see human reason, the lilies on the top, we see in a way that they're connected to divine reason. And this becomes an argument for the existence of God. So that largely, that's that first question, is giving us an understanding of why it is in accord with reason to believe that there is something more than the material universe, and there is something more than material causality, ultimately the creator. Now, the second theme is then looking at the question of miracles. Lewis begins with the idea that, right, if there is no God, then there really can't be miracles because there can't be anything caused by God. There would just be things of which we do not know. And when Lewis begins here, he takes up uh, David Hume's kind of famous criticism of miracles, where Hume, who's an empiricist, uh, right, an empirical philosopher, uh, he argues that he defines miracles as violations of the laws of nature. And then he says, right, if I hear somebody telling me a story that the laws of nature were violated, well, the probability that the laws of nature were violated is almost impossible, and the probability that people made a mistake is quite likely, so I will never believe in a miracle. This is Hume's argument. And what C.S. Lewis does is he simply says, wait a second. Miracles are not violations of the laws of nature. Instead, they are additions to the events of nature, which then follow the laws of nature. All right. So to make that distinction, we have to go back to understanding the difference between laws and events, the laws of nature and the events of nature. And the way C.S. Lewis puts it is this. He says, right, is that the laws of nature explain what happens when the events of nature are happening. So from one system of events, the laws of nature will explain the next system of events, right? If I throw uh, a rock at a glass vase, the laws of nature will explain why that event will lead then to the shattered vase. But what he notes is that the laws of nature themselves don't explain why the events are happening at all. One of the things Lewis will even go so far as to say, the laws of nature explain everything well except everything. The laws of nature only explain what will happen when something is happening, but we need something other than nature to set, so to speak, nature in motion. 
So to create the events of nature, which then follow the laws of nature. So for the miracles, then, what you have are just additional events. So Lewis will say, right, when if you have the miracle of the incarnation, Jesus is begotten in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit without the aid of man, that's a miracle. But then that miracle, that additional event, follows the laws of nature. Jesus takes nine months to be born. He takes years to grow. Uh, he doesn't begin his preaching until he's, well, in 33 or 30, when he's achieved a level of maturity within Jewish society. Right? Later, he gets hungry. He gets thirsty. And, of course, on the cross, he dies. Right? So the miracle is the new event, which then, once it enters into the stream of events, it follows the laws of nature. So that's the second point. Miracles are not violations of the laws of nature. They are additions to the events of nature. Third point is, are miracles arbitrary? Right? Uh, and in a way, what I would like to say is that, on the one hand, no. Miracles are not arbitrary. They're not random. They disclose the intent of the author of creation. In the miracle of the resurrection, what we see is that God's plan for human beings is that they would dwell with him. Sin has separated us from God, and so God's plan is to restore us to communion with God, and he does so first in his son, so that his son now, right, uh, through the human nature he has assumed, dwells perfectly at the right hand of the Father. So the miracles, then, are not random. Uh, they are purposeful interventions, purposeful ways in which right, God is bringing his plan to completion. There's another way in which you might say they are somewhat arbitrary, but what I mean by this is that they are not necessary. Creation itself is not necessary. It's a sheer gift of God. Miracles are not necessary. They're a sheer gift of God. We don't need to ask whether we are not necessary. Right? We ourselves are sheer gifts of God. So if we look then here, we see all that we experience right, is a gift of God in creation and then in recreation. So then the question is, who is this God? And Lewis will suggest in a great chapter called Christianity and Religion that he says, in Christianity, we discover a living God, a God who is fully alive, a God who is fully good, a God, so to speak, who takes sides. He takes the side of good versus evil, life versus death. But he says, opposing this, you have kind of the God of popular religion, which he calls a kind of pantheism, the native bent of the human mind. Now, in this popular religion or pantheism, what you really have is just a broad, big universe. And then within the universe, you have physical causes. Maybe you have kind of something like a human soul, but it's largely operating still at the same level. And then there's a God within the universe, but God's also within the universe, right? He's not transcendent of the universe. So in this mode, God is somehow present, but God can't really act. God can't really take sides because God is kind of immersed within everything. And what Lewis wants to say is, of course, that's a view, but that's not the view of Christianity, right? It's Christianity that comes to kind of say that that view of pantheism where we're all mixed in to the world, mixed in ourselves, mixed up with God, would be a world in which right good could never fully triumph over evil. 
He even gives an example, by the way, of mystical limpets and erudite limpets. You may not know what a limpet is, but I've looked it up. And it's an aquatic snail, right? So basically what he says is that when we're trying to talk about God, it's kind of like snails trying to talk about human beings, right? They don't really understand them very much. But he says, we have to be careful not falling into uh, the kind of erudite limpets, the erudite snails, who in wanting to show how much God or man is better than a snail, that they end up saying he's fundamentally nothing. No, he is more existent, more real. So also God, yes, God is beyond our ability to comprehend, but it's also the case that God has a positive character overflowing with existence and goodness. And Lewis says we have to be careful when we talk about God as spirit. We have to remember, he even describes this one time, he says, if we must have a mental picture to symbolize spirit, we should represent it as something heavier than matter. Spirit is heavier than matter. Right? So, so this is the basic idea that the God who creates the universe in a way is taking sides he wants, so to speak, the universe to come to good. He cares about creation, and he cares about us, and he wants something to happen. So then the last point uh, from the book is just what does he do? He intervenes through the grand miracle of the incarnation and the resurrection, the descent and ascent. And I simply here want to close with two last points. Lewis then, he goes back to St. Athanasius, uh, right, who wrote On the Incarnation of the Word. And Lewis wrote a great introduction to that book, uh, by the way, that's still in print uh, with uh, St. Vladimir's Seminary Press. But in that book, what Athanasius says, and Lewis draws upon this, is he says that because God created us through the Word, he could only redeem us through the Word incarnate. So... Then when we see what the word incarnate does, when we see his miracles, we see that what he is doing locally and quickly through his incarnate nature, what he has been doing kind of slowly and globally for all eternity. So Lewis then describes the, these. When we look at Jesus, we can see both miracles of the old creation and miracles of the new creation. And again, what this allows us to do is that Jesus' miracles are never random. They're not arbitrary. They, they're sheer gifts by which he discloses his purpose. He, in a way, discloses his identity. So Lewis will uh, give the example that when Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding at Cana, well, he turns water into wine. Let us consider what Jesus as the word through whom the world was created does. He, well, he creates water. He creates vines. Vines take up the water, they produce grapes. Human beings take the grapes, turn it into wine. So God, the creator, the word, the creator, the creative word, turns water into wine slowly over time with many hands. Jesus then does suddenly and locally what he's always been doing globally and slowly. He turns water into wine. You can also see right, Jesus calms the storm. Well, what happens when there are storms? Storms pass. The creator of the word, the creator word both allows storms, but also has them pass. So Jesus, when he right, calms the storm, he does suddenly and locally what is what he normally does 
uh, slowly. So again, he's revealing his identity. And then he also talks about the miracles of the new creation, right? The plan, right, of the resurrection discloses that there is a new order of reality into which we are called to live that will ultimately be understood as the new heavens and the new earth. These miracles are going to be that in which material creation comes fully and properly under the logos, under immaterial creation. So here, he is. Jesus does things like he walks through doors. He walks on water. What's he doing there? He's showing that physical... The physical material order of creation is perfectly subject to the logos, to reason. We can't really imagine that. We can't understand that, right? But this is something that he's disclosing, not about the old creation, but the new creation that he will give us. Uh, so I'm going to take a, a break, and uh, we're going to then uh, turn to the silver chair and just see how Lewis takes some of these same themes and puts them in the order of a story. You're listening to The Catholic Theology Show, presented by Ave Maria University. If you'd like to support our mission, we invite you to prayerfully consider joining our Annunciation Circle, a monthly giving program aimed at supporting our staff, faculty, and Catholic faith formation. You can visit us at avemaria.edu to learn more. Thank you for your continued support. And now, let's get back to the show. Welcome back to the Catholic Theology Show. Uh, today is our fourth installment in the Into Narnia with C.S. Lewis series. And we are considering Lewis's Miracles, his uh, book, and then also uh, the story from the Chronicles of Narnia called The Silver Chair. Uh, the Silver Chair was the fourth book released. And in this story we have the characters of um, Jill and um, Eustace, right, who enter into the world of Narnia. This time it's interesting. They begin on Aslan's mountain. and Well, actually, they begin at uh, the experiment school, um, a kind of a rather nasty progressive school in England, and then they escape into Aslan's mountain where everything is clear and bright, Everything is easy to understand. And then they descend into Narnia. And when they descend into Narnia, they're given a mission, which is to find Prince Rillian, who has been captured by the witch or the queen and trapped underground. Eventually, they descend into the underground caves uh, and then at some point have to come back up into Narnia and come back up into Aslan's mountain. So one of the key themes from the silver chair is this, it's kind of a philosophical and spiritual uh, topography, right? We go from the mountain, Aslan's mountain, down into Narnia, down into the caves. From the caves, we then go up into Narnia and up into Aslan's country. With the mention of the caves, right, it's Lewis, who loves Plato, uh, at one point, he said, I think at the end of the last battle, he has the professor say, right, bless me, right? What do they teach them in these schools these days? It's all in Plato. It's all in Plato. Now, we're going to show how it's actually not all in Plato. But there is an element that Lewis believed that Plato was able to recognize 
that beyond the sensible was something intelligible and that the intelligible was actually the cause of the sensible. Why is it that, so to speak, matter continually in, say, animals reproduces itself in the exact same way that life is continued, right? So that, you know, when, when, um, when you have foxes and they have baby foxes and they grow up and have more foxes, they're always following fox things, right? They're becoming foxes, right? There has to be some kind of intelligible ordering that determines the matter, Otherwise, the matter would simply randomly change and devolve over time. So, right, Plato began to, he called these the forms, the form of the good, ultimately, uh, which acted like the sun, he said, not only because it illuminated reality, but it caused reality to grow, right? All everything on earth, in a way, is caused to grow in part by the sun, so what Lewis sees then is that what we see in our visible temporal order that we can measure and touch has an intelligible principle associated with it. Aristotle would somewhat modify Plato's understanding of the forms by saying that the forms are not out there in another realm, but they're in the f- natures that as we see them, right? So the form of the fox is not somewhere else, but it's actually in the nature of the fox, right? It's in the fox. So the form becomes, uh, right, the, uh, the shape, so to speak, that brings to life the matter of the fox. But the idea is the form itself is not material. It's the intelligible ordering. I even heard a kind of somewhat of a non-theistic biologist who described that the order of the DNA, even though DNA is material, the order of the DNA is not material. Right? It's somehow a higher thing. So it's this kind of this principle of order uh, that is present. So what Lewis suggests then, and this is going to be both a philosophical topography where we descend and ascend, and also a religious one. Remember in the grand miracle in Miracles, Lewis said that really the grand miracle is one of descent and ascent. Everything in a way that we experience is one of descent and ascent. Right? Uh, plants have to has, cast seeds. They have to descend into the ground so they can ascend back unto life. He describes animals right as they have to uh, descend with their seed uh, with their, right, the fertilization occurs with animals in the deep, so to speak, and then life comes out again and ascends back. He says even within human beings, we have our rational selves, but when we move, then it descends into our emotions, it descends into our bodies. But if we're to remain fully human, then it has to ascend back in a way so that our bodies and our emotions kind of lift themselves back up into reason and speech, right, so that we can love and communicate ourselves, to give ourselves to one another. So again, so this is the basic kind of ordering. So let's consider this. So first on the philosophical level, right? Well, we know Plato famously in the Republic speaks of the cave, right? And he says, what would it mean if education is somehow like trying to get out of a cave? Imagine, he says, that there's a cave in which 
prisoners only see a wall. And they only see a wall of shadows. And the walls that they see of shadows, and they can't turn around, are illuminated by fires away. And then there are figures that human beings have made, which then create shadows on a wall. So in a way, all of our experience at the first level, we are seeing, so to speak, shadows of things that human beings have made. And so he says, in some sense, right, the project of true education would be to escape, one of, have one of those prisoners escape, leave the prison of the cave, and ascend to discover the sun. He says, first, he'd be so overwhelmed by the sun, he couldn't see. The sun would be so bright. But he says, over time, his eyes would come to adjust, and he would begin to see the sun and the real things that are present in the world. Um, Plato continues that, that if he goes back into the cave, of course, and tries to tell everyone, he, he might well get killed, uh, right? Because people may not want to uh, discover, in a way, the truth about themselves. So, so this, is the, this is kind of the backdrop. So what Lewis develops this in The Silver Chair is he has then the characters go down, right? Uh, they enter into Narnia, and when they're in Narnia, they can't see as well as they could on the Aslan's Mountain. And then when they go to the underworld, right, they basically can't really see much at all. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, there's sunlight on Aslan's Mountain, and when they land in Narnia, it's sunset. The sun is setting, and a lot of the journeys will take place in the moonlight, there are even owls who can see well at night. Uh, the moonlight or uh, the kind of pale gray mist of overcast and foggy days as they journey up north. One of the difficulties with moonlight is that we're very capable of making mistakes. We don't see things as clearly with moonlight as with sunlight. One of the other interesting things is that moonlight, of course, is not moonlight in a way at all. Moonlight is just sunlight reflected. So we can think in a way that Lewis is giving us here a metaphor for the whole natural world. The natural world, in a way, is moonlight. The natural world does give off light, but it doesn't give off its own light. It gives off light that is reflected from the sun, right? Light that is reflected from God. But then when we descend into the caves, right, as the characters descend into the cave to try to save Prince Rillian, they discover that they're cut off even from moonlight. They can't even see the reflection of the sun. They, in a way, become trapped. Within this, then, uh, right, it's very hard. There's a saying that keeps repeating itself. As they fall down, they actually fall down kind of somewhat accidentally. We'll get into that in a minute. Um, Right. One of the things that uh, Padukam says famously is there are no accidents. Right, Everything, in a way, happens according to God's plan. But this is what it says when they're down in the caves. Many fall down and few return to the sunlit lands. Many fall down and few return to the sunlit lands. Right? In a certain sense, this is what it means to be human. We have fallen down, fallen out of our proper understanding of the world, and few return to the sunlit lands. Right. So, so the first idea is that when you're in a cave, that the actual proper rational 
unphilosophical understanding of the world is to remember that the cave is not all there is. There is a world above. And in this world, even above that world, there is the world of the creator. So how is it then that we return? So this is going to be the starting point. So Lewis, he really wants to develop this theme of like moonlight. And that's why he calls it the silver chair. It's not the golden chair. Uh, it's not the voyage of the dawn treader in which the sun and the sunlight becomes dominant. This is the silver chair. Everything is silvery. Everything is somewhat prone to mistake. What Lewis will say in a way is that it's hard in our world to distinguish dreams from reality. And as I said, the characters were in Narnia, then they descend into Underland. Uh, when they go from Underland, they eventually go back to Narnia. And Lewis at times, I just want to give you these quotes, because what he suggests is that we are so, like our minds are so predominate, like whatever we're currently experiencing so predominates in our minds that other things that are certainly real cease to feel real to us. Things, in a way, in the past feel like a dream, not because they're in any sense dreamlike, but simply because we're so shaped by our current experiences. One of the difficulties is learning to not be bound by our current experiences. So listen to the way Lewis describes this. And again, this is part of this, many fall down and few return to the sunlit lands. He says, when the characters were underground for long enough and they were sailing on some underground ships on underground seas. The worst thing about it was that you began to feel as if you had always lived on that ship in that darkness and to wonder whether sun and blue skies and wind and birds had not been only a dream. In a way, often the, what is most genuinely real may appear for us to be a dream if we're not currently experiencing it. Interestingly, and I think brilliantly, at the end of the story, when Lewis has the characters somehow return to Narnia, they escape the underland, they escape the witch. He says they've only been out in the, they'd only escaped from the caverns, escaped from the caves for a little bit. Uh, they actually show up in the middle of the night during a great snowball dance. Uh, and they've been out for, he says, about like 10 minutes or an hour, but it seemed as if it had been an eternity. And this is what he writes. Yet it already, it felt to Jill and Eustace as if all their dangers in the dark and heat and general smotheriness of the earth must have only been a dream. Out here in the cold with the moon and the huge stars overhead, Nardian stars are nearer than stars in our world. And with kind, merry faces all around them, one couldn't quite believe in Underland. Yeah, so Lewis is really drawing attention uh, that we are somehow the sort of beings in a way that are designed to live in the present, but this can really limit our ability to apprehend what is true. Of course, we know in the story that they were for a while and a long while trapped in Underland, and that, of course, when they were trapped in Underland, they had certainly lived for a while in Narnia. Again, as he says in Mere Christianity, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods, for moods will change whatever view your reason takes. So this, again, is the philosophical view. We need to remember that there are truths, 
and that there are truths that exceed our ability to understand. But this is what I want to suggest is where Lewis in the silver chair is also both praising Plato, but he's also showing, right, that we need more than Plato. Plato's cave is good, but the resurrection is better. And there are two particular things that Plato couldn't see. Number one, God's providence. And number two, the resurrection of Jesus. In the story, at the beginning, Jill Pole, and it was supposed to be Eustace, but Eustace fell off the cliff because they were fighting on the edge of the cliff, uh, right, before he gets blown into Narnia. Jill receives four signs. These signs are her instructions for how to navigate the world in Narnia, how to carry out her mission. These signs, right, the language of signs is very important within the Christian tradition. We can go back to the Gospel of John, uh, who has seven signs in which uh, Jesus's glory is manifested. Uh, They speak about the miracles as signs that disclose something greater than the miracle itself. Our attention isn't supposed to be on the miracle, but on the glory of God revealed. In John 1.14, so right, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? And we have like we have um, seen, beheld his glory. The signs disclose the glory of God. Now, another notion of signs is that the signs are sacraments. The signs are Scripture. The signs, in a way, are commandments. God is no longer present in our world in the way he was in the incarnate world when he was incarnate in his historical time. But he has ascended, and he has sent us the Holy Spirit, and God now communicates the Holy Spirit to us through the signs of the sacraments and through Scripture. In a way, that's also why the Silver Chair is kind of a strange book. It's not quite as exciting as the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, It's not as magical as the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Right? Uh, Aslan, interestingly, doesn't show up in the story itself other than on his mountain. When they're on Narnia, when they're in Narnia, he only shows up at the very end to call them home, and then once he appears in a dream to Jill. So, Aslan's presence is mediated, or he is present, and he's present through the signs that he gives Jill and that the Jill and Puddleglum and Eustace embrace. Of course, one of the difficulties is that in Narnia, they begin to forget the signs. They forget repeating them. Uh, They forget, in a way, if you go back to, say, uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, the great Shema of the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Him alone shall you love, right, with all your heart, strength, and might. And this is what you need to tell yourself and your neighbors and your children. You need to reinforce this truth that God is one. Jesus says this, right, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. These, in a way, are the key signs, the key signs of baptism and the Eucharist. And in a way, We don't get yet to experience the sun directly. We don't experience, say, as in the book of Revelation, it describes in the final city, 
There'll be no temple because God himself will dwell there. There will be no signs because God himself will be there. There will be no sun because God himself will be in the city. But in this world, and again, in our world, we live amidst kind of signs. We tend to fall into confusion. Even amidst the church, there is confusion, uh, division. So this idea, in a way, then, of we can't see clearly, but that which we need to know, we discover through the signs that Aslan gives us. Within that, then, the signs that Aslan give us follow a certain kind of providential order. At one time in the story, the characters see the great kind of carving on this former kind of hillside uh, that was carved by mount uh, by giants. Uh, and it ends up with the word under me. And when they see the words under me, they go under that, and that's where they begin to find the prince. But at one point, somebody opposes them and says, wait a second, that wasn't, That doesn't mean anything. That was simply there because that was actually one of the kind of, uh, that was carved on the tombstone of a great giant king. It's meaningless. So anyway, when the children are getting confused, Puddleglum again says this, there are no accidents. Our guide is Aslan. He was there when the giant king caused the letters to be cut, and he already knew all things that would come of them, including this. So throughout the story, what we discover is that God is already providentially at work in the world. And even though they, so to speak, uh, muff, they mess up the first three signs, nonetheless, because they are willing and they follow and they attempt to do the best they can, and they finally do what the prince asks, who's actually trapped um, under an enchantment, when he asks in the name of Aslan, Right? They release him, uh, and then they are able to save him. Right? So it's this idea of trusting in a way that God's providence will be established. Right? Plato could see that there's an intelligible world beyond this world, that there was a true form of the good, Hathaos, the God, but he could not see that that God took, so to speak, an active interest in the historical providential affairs of human beings. So that's the first step. The second step right, is even greater. Right, what Jesus does in the resurrection. So at the very end of the story, King Caspian, who had been the protagonist of uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, or one of the protagonists, uh, in this story, of course, he's become old and he dies at the beginning of the, the story. Uh, and right as he dies, they eventually go up to Mount uh, Aslan Mountain. And when they're there, they see King Caspian lying dead under the water kind of in a river. They stand there and they weep. And even the lion, even Aslan wept, right? Just like Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But eventually one drop of his blood, right? He actually has Eustace grab a large thorn and shove it into his paw. So one drop of blood drops in the water and brings Caspian back to life. What he does is he brings about the resurrection. The resurrection of the dead is something that Plato could have never understood. But that's ultimately what we need is not only to discover that there's an intelligible world that's the cause of the sensible, but to recognize that the creator of the universe cares for us and has a plan. 
And he has accomplished that plan through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that by his blood, we have been healed. By his blood, we are redeemed. By his blood, we may live forever as children of God. Again, going back to what Paul said in Acts 17, not only is God the creator, but because he's the creator, he has a plan. And his plan is, uh, is perfected right when he has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So just in summary, I want to highlight three key themes. Number one, are miracles possible? Right? Yes, they are not violations of the laws of nature, but they are additions to the streams of events that are already caused by the creator. Are miracles random, arbitrary? Well, no, they are not random, but they are, nor are they necessary. They are sheer gifts from the creator. And the creator already unnecessarily created us, created the universe, right, as sheer gift. All miracles, in a way, then, are kind of manifestations of the sheer goodness of God. I want to say one word here. Is this understanding that all the miracles, their meaning is disclosed through the grand miracle of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? And this, I think, can be helpful for Christians who may have, who may believe in miracles but wonder why they haven't happened to them. Right? When a group of people pray for somebody who's falling into cancer or falling into addiction or pray for people who um, right, you know, have, a, have a, a child who's very sick or a pregnancy that's going badly, um, right? Sometimes miracles happen, and many times they do not, right? You know, uh, illnesses get worse, right? You know, um, uh, children die, right? That also happens, and what we want to remember is that all of those have their meaning disclosed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Even when Lazarus was raised from the dead, that wasn't really solving his problem because he was going to die anyway. As we know, the Jews were trying to kill him. So really, what does Lazarus really need? He needs to be raised from the dead permanently, raised unto eternal life. Even the earthly life that might come back to somebody suffering with cancer is not the life for which they long. So those who, when miracles happen, they point to the ultimate miracle of our resurrection in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when they don't, again, we find meaning in that same hope. And then finally, I just want to suggest that there's a beautiful image here of having faith amidst the dark nights of suffering. Let us hold fast to the signs. Remember the signs. Remember the signs, as Aslan says here. Let us remember Christ in the sacraments. Christ in Scripture, remembering them, repeating them to ourselves, recognizing that our attention span is very limited. Right? As somebody said, we have the attention span of a gnat. Uh, right? You know, we have to foster memory, remembering who we are and who God is and what God has done for us and how He communicates that to us in Scripture and the sacraments. Amidst the caves of loss, despair, pain, and injustice, when we cannot easily see the sun or feel God's mercy or providence. Let us have faith. Again, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods, for your moods will change, whatever your your reason takes. And finally, let us with Puddleglum say, 
There are no accidents, right? And trust in our guide, Aslan. Let us say, I'm on Aslan's side, even if there isn't any Aslan deleted. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. So I hope you will join me in living like Narnians. And uh, thank you very much for this time. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app to help others find the show. And if you want to take the next step, please consider joining our Annunciation Circle so we can continue to bring you more free content. We'll see you next time on The Catholic Theology Show.